Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. And I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high redshift universe, both theoretically and observationally, through quasars. You're listening to episode 77, The Air Out There. And today we're talking about air way out there, as in air on planets (laughs) around other stars. The first exoplanet was detected in 1992, and the first exoplanetary atmosphere was measured in 2001. Hmm. While there have been many detections of exoplanet atmospheres in the past two decades, we are still in the really early days of exoplanet science compared to just about every other subfield of astronomy. So there is a lot of excitement and a lot of great discoveries coming just about every month. Last episode, that is 76, Kirsten hosted a really amazing episode where she interviewed the Black and Astro organizers and discussed Black Space Week and the experience of being Black in astronomy. So in this week, we are doing what is a normal science episode, but we chose Astrobytes, where all of the papers they summarized were written by Black astronomers. I love it. So let's get into some intro questions. So why are we interested in studying the atmospheres of exoplanets? Who's up first? I think that's me. So there are so many reasons why we're interested in studying atmospheres, mostly because they're the first look into what's going on on the actual surface of the planet. And it's one of the first ways that we're going to be able to tell these things. And we want to know what's going on on the surface of the planet because this could impact things like habitability. And so when we're thinking about maybe detecting life or whether or not a planet could be habitable, we would want to make sure that it doesn't have you know, acid rain on the planet or something like that, that we think might not be good for sustaining life. But also we can look at their atmospheres to see if there are any biosignatures. So biosignatures are something that basically exist within the atmosphere. A couple of biosignatures that you will probably hear about within Sabrina's astrobite is ammonia, but there are other ones like methane. And the idea here is that these don't exist from just weathering or anything that could occur on the surface of the planet, like volcanoes or something like that, just natural processes. And another reason that we would want to study atmospheres is also just to learn the diversity and the composition of planets. And by studying the atmospheres, we're also able to understand how the interiors might be impacted and maybe we can start to understand the materials that these planets are made out of. Yeah, that's awesome. 
Do you guys remember when there were all these news reports on how phosphine was found in Venus? Oh, yeah. Atmosphere? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And oh, then yes. everything sort of went silent for a while. I was actually, I forgotten like which planet and which molecule had been found on the planet in our solar system. And then I Googled it and then I realized SOFIA or the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, which is this plane that flies around the world with this I don't know, around the world, but it flies up in the air and has this telescope on it. Actually, didn't find phosphine. And so I guess you could call it being debunked. So there's probably no phosphine in Venus's atmosphere. There's actually a lot of controversy about this. Still? Oh, yes. Okay. I think most people in the field disagree with the detection. The original team still believes it and supports it. They d- double down on it. I think what it's been determined based on those I've spoken to is that there are many ways of processing the data. The way that they did it results in a detection, but you could easily choose 900 other ways to do it and not get a detection. Oh. I think most people are highly skeptical. And additionally, we should add that Sophia was sadly decommissioned by Congress last year. So Sophia is no more. And I think that's a huge loss for the community. Sophia's like last great hurrah or last great big discovery. Thanks, Sophia. (laughs) Maybe we can, if we have better signal to noise, I guess, in the future, maybe it will be Sophia's last big hurrah. The prevailing wisdom of the field is that there is no phosphine on Venus. I think that it's very hard to confirm a non-detection is the Mm -hmm. difficulty. But let's keep it moving and stay yeah. with the air out there, not in here. <laughs> All right. So how do we study the atmospheres of exoplanets? We cannot send an orbiter or probe. So what do we do? Not yet. So the main technique used to study the atmospheres of exoplanets is called transmission spectroscopy. It sounds super fancy. So let's break it down. Transmission says transmitted light from its host star going through the atmosphere. And as it goes through the atmosphere, it's being absorbed, or maybe it's causing some other emission, or maybe there's some other emission that's actually caused from whatever reactions in the atmosphere. And we end up with what's called a transmission spectrum. So this gives us intensities versus frequencies of light or wavelengths of light. So we're looking at both emission and absorption in these transmission spectra. And basically looks like a bunch of peaks and dips. You can Google a transmission spectrum if you're interested. So transmission spectroscopy is really helpful, but we haven't been able to do it that well until JWST. Well, JWST actually hasn't shown us that we can do it that well yet. There's been a lot of predictions, which I'll talk about in my Astrobyte today, as to the power of what JWST will be able to do in terms of exploring exoplanet atmospheres. Transmission spectroscopy can really be a key component in determining and constraining the habitability of a planet because it helps us understand what's going on in the atmosphere and that helps us narrow down the habitability of a planet. Excellent. So you hinted at how James Webb might be instrumental in measuring the atmospheres of exoplanets. Why are we so excited about Webb? What makes it so great? Webb just has an incredible potential for discovering biosignatures in exoplanets' atmospheres because its precision is just unparalleled. We talked about this in our JWST episode, so you can go back and learn more about JWST in episode 61. 
what's the T on JWST? And we also talked about it mm. in our two-part series on astronomy 10 years into the future. So I think there are a few people that talked about using JWST to study exoplanet atmospheres. Hubble and Spitzer actually did some transmission spectroscopy, but they had much smaller wavelength ranges and their spectral resolution, so basically how finely they were able to separate out the light, wasn't anywhere nearly as high as it is for JWST. So this made it much more difficult to distinguish between different molecules and elements in the atmosphere of a planet. One exoplanet that has already been observed with JWST and has helped basically constrain some models for how it's formed already before JWST was launched is WASP-39b, which is a hot exoplanet with a Saturn-like mass. There are a bunch of nature papers which helped us understand WASP-39b's atmosphere in a way that pointed to the photochemistry of the atmosphere. And we know that our own photochemistry in Earth's atmosphere helps protect us from high energy radiation. And similarly, on exoplanets, that is another indicator for habitability. So studying photochemistry or photochemical reactions that affected the atmosphere and the transmission spectroscopy was done for the first time with WASP-39b and JWST. And we're still waiting for more papers and observations of exoplanets to learn more. To tack on to that, JWST is also going to potentially be able to see the surface of these planets. And we actually might be able to do some transmission spectroscopy on planets that are expected to not have substantial atmospheres, which means that we could get basically the first idea about some of these other rocky or not rocky planets out there too. So that's one of the things that I'm really interested in. Last question before we get into the astrobytes, real quick, what is a planetary mass object? So a planetary mass object is basically anything that's not a star. And so this includes the brown dwarfs, which are these intermediate mass objects between stars and planets. And we don't actually have a really good idea about these objects, but basically brown dwarfs live in between this mass range of 13 Jupiter masses to around 80 Jupiter masses. And they're thought to have deuterium fusing. So instead of fusing from hydrogen to helium, they fuse hydrogen to deuterium. Eventually, they stop doing that and they just cool off. So anything less massive than a star. But more massive than like uh, an asteroid. Yes, exactly. Got it. All right. Thank you for the thorough introduction. Let us move right along to Sabrina's astrobite. And Sabrina is going to tell us about what JWST was predicted to be capable of before it launched. Yeah, so this is really exciting in that we actually had the author of this paper as an interviewee. Kirsten interviewed her as part of the Black and Astro episode from the first part of this series. So this paper is called Detecting Biosignatures in the Atmospheres of Gas Dwarf Planets with JWST. And its first author is Caprice Phillips, who is a graduate student at The Ohio State University studying primarily exoplanet atmospheres. Kirsten, correct me if I'm wrong. She studies, I would say, atmospheres, so brown dwarfs included. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess this is technically more of a gas dwarf paper. So the Astrobytes title is The Atmospheres of Small Planets Through a Big Telescope, and it was written by Luna Zagarok. And it was actually published, or the Astrobyte at least, was published just three days before JWST was launched on December 25th, 2021. And the paper itself is from late 2021. So this is really one of I think, the last sort of exoplanet prediction papers before JWST was launched. As we know, JWST had this really, really long waiting time. It was proposed in 1996. And I think we've talked a lot more about how JWST can help us peer deeper and deeper into the universe, looking at high redshift galaxies. I feel like that's been maybe the first main results. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like its biggest contribution. Yeah. We still have a lot more time with JWST to learn more and more about exoplanets, and this paper kind of hints to one way to do that. So this paper talks about planets that are larger than Earth and smaller than Neptune's that are probably surrounded by hydrogen. So these are called gaseous dwarf planets. Okay. Because they're slightly bigger, they have more gravitational pull, so they can actually retain hydrogen in their atmospheres. Versus our atmosphere, for example, looks a lot different. It's mostly nitrogen. And they are not gas giants, which I was confused about initially because they sounded just like a gas giant as not really a planet person, but they're a special type of gaseous dwarf planet. So I guess they actually have a rocky Mm. core, if that's right. Yeah, so they're kind of classified more like a mini Neptune or a sub-Neptune, whichever one you want to call. But yeah, you're 100% correct. It is not a gas giant, gas giant. Yeah, it's kind of a fuzzy line, especially if you don't work directly on this. Anyway, the gaseous dwarf planets that Caprice is looking at have these hydrogen-rich atmospheres, which have chemical reactions that can produce ammonia. So to produce ammonia, you need really high temperatures and pressures, or you need some sort of catalyst to make the chemical reaction happen a lot more in the atmosphere. And actually, this catalyst itself within the atmosphere could point towards a more habitable planet. To get rid of ammonia... It happens pretty easily in volcanoes or with volcanic activity in general. So if we see ammonia in a planet's atmosphere, this indicates that it's creating it often. There's some sort of cycle happening. And ammonia is, I guess, a light potential biosignature. I was looking at a paper recently that said it's actually not super strong, but it could help predict where to do follow-up observations of exoplanets that could potentially be habitable. Even if not habitable, it certainly seems interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how are they uh, predicting Webb would be able to detect that? Yeah. So Caprice simulates the atmospheres and like what the observations of those atmospheres would look like with JWST. They looked at seven nearby exoplanets that were gaseous dwarf planets and had the right temperature to indicate that they were habitable. So I'm guessing just based on the star's mass and and how much radiation they can predict, like an equilibrium temperature or something like that, which is a really rough estimate for the planet's temperature. And if it's not like boiling hot or freezing cold, that says that the planet could be more habitable. But they focus specifically on the TESS object of interest 270C. TESS is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, and it's an all-sky survey looking for exoplanets with the transit method. And this particular planet was a Neptune-like exoplanet orbiting around an M-type star and it six times Earth's mass, and it was discovered in 2019. So 
Of course, going back to the discussion questions, the way that we'll actually be searching for ammonia in future observations with JWST is with transmission spectroscopy. So actually what would be observed with transmission spectroscopy on JWST is what Caprice does. So she simulates the atmospheres and what the predicted observations for this particular planet, what it would have if it had ammonia in its atmosphere, would we be able to detect it? And luckily, ammonia shows up at a bunch of different wavelengths that JWST is just excellent looking at. So that's in the infrared between 1 to 10 micrometers. And there's a bunch of different lines within that range um, that you can use to probe ammonia within the atmosphere. Caprice simulates a bunch of potential atmospheres for this planet. And she also notices that cloud decks, so cloud decks are basically clouds. I think that's just a fancy way to say clouds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a thick layer of clouds. Okay. <laughs> so a cloud deck is a thick layer of clouds. And she notices that cloud decks that are at especially high pressure, so at low height, or an atmosphere of this planet that doesn't have any cloud deck, will have ammonia that is much more easy to observe with JWST. Does she end up mentioning whether or not they would be able to detect any sort of ammonia if it was a higher cloud deck, I guess? Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, they simulate different cloud decks at a bunch of different heights. They find that at a high height, the spectrum actually just flattens out Mm -hmm. so that you can't see ammonia or it would make it really, really difficult to detect. And I should have mentioned that the instruments that she's using to simulate these observations are NIRSPEC, which is the Near Infrared Spectrograph on JWST, and the Near Infrared Image and Slitless Spectrograph, or NIRIS. So these are what will be the best instruments for looking for ammonia in exoplanet atmospheres. Mm -hmm. So the conclusions of this paper are that, yes, JWST will be able to detect ammonia on a gaseous dwarf planet, or they think they're, they think that it's really probable, but you need a couple ingredients to make this happen. You need a really hydrogen abundant atmosphere to make sure that you have enough ammonia. Remember, if we have higher signal to noise, that'll make it much easier to detect. We also need a process that regenerates lots of ammonia, or it's not taking away ammonia within the planet itself. And then also, they predict this will be much easier for gaseous dwarf planets that have no clouds or a really low cloud deck. So this paper came out before James Webb launched. The launch was successful. Every instrument is performing at or better than what the specs were. So have we detected ammonia in some exoplanet atmosphere? Hey, I think calibration is still really (laughs) up for debate. I mean, JWST has been amazing, but I don't know why. I just was at a conference for JWST recently, and they were just all talking about how they need to do a conference just for calibration because it's been so crazy. Uh, at least in the high redshift universe stuff. Mm. Yeah, so all I could find so far, don't get your hopes up though, JWST was only launched two years ago, astronomy moves really slowly, (laughs) was that there was a paper that came out in 2023 by McClure et al., which is called An Ice Age JWST Inventory of Dense Molecular Cloud Ices, and they actually detected frozen ammonia so we're looking for Ooh, in this paper, delicious. water and carbon dioxide um, in this protostellar nebula. They haven't detected it in exoplanet atmosphere yet, but 
JWST is detecting some ammonia. Mm -hmm. So I actually went on the JWST website and I typed in ammonia and I only found one proposal, which is a cycle two guaranteed time observation or GTO proposal. And it's called surface composition of mid-sized trans-Neptunian objects searching for ammonia. Oh, it's a solar system proposal. Yeah. And it's with NearSpec. Nice. So there is a plan to look for ammonia on two Sharon-like objects. So Sharon being the largest of Pluto's moons. For those that are unfamiliar, guaranteed time observations for JWST is awarded to the scientists who are involved in building it. So they get some guaranteed time in the first few cycles, and it's non-competitive. They just have their time, and they can use it as they wish. Everybody else has to apply to the general observer, the GO proposal, and that's highly, highly competitive. It's seven to one oversubscribed, so good luck. But if you have GTO, you get to just look at whatever you want. So we'll be uh, following that closely and see if they find any interesting ammonia in the outer solar system. I'm super interested to see what they find. Same here. Sabrina, thank you for bringing us that very exciting astrobite. I enjoyed it tremendously. Yeah, no problem. Next up in this episode, we have our exonoise for the extraction of exotic astronomy. Now, today's exonoise is going to be a little different than our usual because I'm going to tell you what we're going to listen to and what it's about before we do it. But don't worry, there will still be a surprise inside. Interesting. Now, so here's some background. NASA launched in 2007 the Themis mission. And Themis stands for Time History of Events and Macro Scale Interactions During Substorms. Talk about contrived. And that was five satellites launched in 2007. Three are orbiting Earth. Two, after orbiting Earth for a while, were sent out to orbit the moon. And the Themis mission is designed to measure Earth's magnetosphere. The magnetosphere is the region surrounding Earth that's dominated by Earth's magnetic field. So it separates the interior from Earth's magnetic field to the rest of interplanetary space where the sun's magnetic field dominates. And there's a boundary there. Charged particles are coupled either to the sun's magnetic field or to Earth's magnetic field. So these charged particles, plasma particles inside Earth's magnetosphere can interact with our atmosphere, that's what produces the aurora, can cause blackouts, can produce all sorts of interesting phenomena. And tracking that is part of the efforts of NASA and other agencies. And there are a number of different questions about the way that this whole paradigm operates, because how could it change with the solar cycle? How could it impact humans spending a lot of time in space, the radiation environment for a spacecraft, life around other planets? Do you need a magnetic field to have life? So on and so forth. There is a program within NASA called HARP, the Heliophysics Audiofied Resonances in Plasmas program. And HARP is a citizen science project. And what HARP does is it's trying to help understand the Themis measurements by using sound. And the way they came up with the name HARP is because the magnetic field surrounding Earth vibrates kind of like a harp, and the plasma vibrates in that magnetic field the way that air vibrates around a musical instrument. And so what they do for this citizen science project is they produce what they call audifications. There is a slight difference between audification and sonification, but I think we'll skip that for today. 
I'm going to play you an example of what one of their modifications sounds like. Weird. This is an artification from the Themis mission. And Themis is in an orbit that takes it pretty far away from Earth and then right up close and then back away. And within, you can hear the kind of dips where it goes, right? All those are real signals, but there's lots of noise. And with your ear, you can easily pick out those up and down signals. And those are real potential waves, potential uh, disturbances, turbulence in the magnetic field from the detections made by this spacecraft. So to participate in the HART project, you can go on their website, follow a little tutorial, and they essentially will train you in 10 minutes on what to listen for and what to look for. And then you can just listen and see if you can detect these signals. So I thought for today's space sound, we would do it together and just see if we can pick out a signal in one of the sounds that they choose for us. I did the training earlier today, so I am up to the time where it's giving me real ones, I think. I feel like this is such a good example of the amazing things that sonification can do, like actual research, which I guess is a theme that we've been talking about in previous sonifications from other episodes. But And this project, one of the people involved is Martin Archer, who is at Imperial College London. And he spoke on a panel that I helped organize at AGU last year about this project and about sonification. And he does a ton of outreach and is a really interesting person. He's got a lot of cool YouTube videos. And yeah, there is so much interest in using this and just combining multiple senses and getting people involved and people excited about this. All right. So if you go and sign into HARP and you get trained and you start to participate, you can see this interface where it shows a spectrogram for three audio clips that it plays you, shows you the orbit of Themis relative to Earth and the sun. And then you can play, you can mess with the contrast, you can change the speed and try to figure out what's going on. So let's just play this and see which one it's picked for us. So I'm gonna play the first half of the first one again. And we, we have to pick out from there what the signal is. So that, to me, sounds like a decreasing signal. Now, visually, I can see what look like two sort of decreasing lines. The question is, do you think this is just one signal or do you think this is multiple signals, a, a harmonic? I'll play it one more time. So I'm going to select on the screen what I think as the chunk that has real signals. And then it pops up with this box and ask you to characterize it. So this just goes down. I think this sounds like a mix of tones to me. And I would say this is a harmonic. I think it's at least two. How confident am I? I'm like a <laughs> two out of five. Interesting. I feel like I would say something similar because it definitely goes down, but I don't know if it's one or two or whatever signals. It's a little hard to tell. And that's kind of the point is you got to do a lot of different people. Sometimes changing the contrast here that give you two options can help. I think it doesn't mm. really for this one. I'm going to play the second half of this first segment. Mm. 
Let's do that one more time. So there's like a whole bunch of jumbled up stuff in the beginning. I don't, it's like a, and then it goes in like a pattern. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> like it definitely that. goes up though. So this second chunk goes up. I only hear in that one line. Do you hear a harmonic in there? Mm. Play it again. I think I only hear one, but to be fair, I don't know what a harmonic sounds like. Ah, Neither do well, I. We'll get to that in a minute because there is one here that is very clearly a harmonic. I think it's a pure tone with one line, and I'll say it's a two for confidence because it also mm. is pretty messy. So let's jump along to this one here and listen to this. I'm going to play the, the two segments, the beginning and the end of this third piece. Let's listen to that again. So going down and then coming back up, it's not just one signal. It's two signals like a chord moving down the piano and then up the piano. Do you hear that? Well, you can kind of see that there looks like two different lines. I don't know if that's what we're supposed to be seeing. Yeah. But that's exactly what you're supposed to be seeing. That there's one oh. here and, and there's one there. So oh, interesting. The idea is that there actually are two signals present here. So I'm going to select them both. This just goes down. It's a mix of tones. It's got multiple lines. And I'm pretty confident, actually. I'm going to go four on this. And then I've already listened to this. So I know that this one again goes up another one. I'm going to go three on that. And then to me, this second one, maybe you could say here, there are multiple lines, but I'm not confident on it. And then to me, this all sounds like noise, mm -hmm. but I'm also not super confident. So that's my guess for how we break up this thing into all these chunks. And then you hit mark event as completed. How clear were the waves? I think there were definitely some waves, so maybe three. And let's submit it. And now it brings up the next one and we can start again. Yeah. I think that is probably enough citizen sciencing for today. <laughs> that was fun. Cool. I wonder why that's not an easy deep learning task, honestly. I think it probably could be. I mean, essentially what you're doing when you ask people to do this for a citizen science project is you are using a neural net. It's just all biological. You're just having a lot of people <laughs> use our homegrown neural nets and then you're ensembling the average. So it's it's yeah. pretty sophisticated right then and there. But I think there's something bigger than that. I think it's an outreach project as well. And huh. NASA has a vested interest in citizen science outreach, getting people involved, aware of this because we're approaching mm -hmm. a solar maximum. This is relevant to our mm -hmm. lives. So I think you're probably right. It could be a really interesting machine learning project. But we also could find that it just doesn't work as well. And we know that humans are also just really great classifiers. So mm -hmm. absolutely, you know, we the got something going for us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That ends our space sound today. Thanks. Well, yeah. Thanks for sick. playing along. <laughs> really interesting. Yeah, I loved it. So next up on our theme of exoatmospheres and JWST, Kirsten is going to tell us about an exciting web first. Take it away, Kirsten. 
Yeah, so the astrobite that I'm going to be talking about today is called JWST's first direct spectrum of a planetary mass object. This astrobite is talking about a paper that was written by Dr. Brittany Miles, and she is a postdoc at the University of Arizona. So basically what this paper looks at is the first brown dwarf spectrum with JWST's early release program. And so a couple of things to know about the early release program is that the main things that they're looking for is really just to see, you know, these quick turnarounds and what can JWST initially do. So this isn't going to be mm-hmm. something super, super in-depth, but it's really worth mentioning and really interesting. And the other thing that we'll need to know is about brown dwarf types. And I don't know if you guys are super familiar with brown dwarf types because I wasn't until like, I don't know, like a year ago. I should probably feel a little bit bad, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, so brown dwarfs have different types. They're actually very, very interesting objects. So I'm going to talk about three main types here and just kind of preface what they are. So there's L type, which is the hottest brown dwarf. And typically you can tell that it's an L type by the emission band. So it has metal hydrides and prominent alkali metal lines in its spectrum. And then there's the T type that is around 700 to 1300 Kelvin. And you typically see absorption bands with methane in them as well as like sodium and potassium. And then the Y types are the coolest ones that are typically less than 600 Kelvin, and they don't have as many metal features as L and T type. And so the object that Brittany and her collaborators were looking at was a beautiful name, VHS 1256B. And so this is a young, and by young I mean less than 300 million years old. Hmm. It's really close by and it's widely separated from its host star or I don't know if we call them host stars if it's also this intermediate object, but maybe companion, whatever you want to call it. Are they like in binary systems or? Yeah. So a lot of the time brown dwarfs typically you won't find them by themselves. They're kind of like planets. You can have some free floating ones. Um, and maybe that's what dark matter is. Who knows? But uh, but oftentimes we'll see them when we detect them. We'll typically see them with a star. Cool. But yeah, so this brown dwarf is widely separated from its host. So what this means is that it's a really good object for observing because it's not going to get a lot of contamination from its host star. And also... We know from previous observations that this is just generally a really interesting object that has a lot of variability within its atmosphere, and it might have turbulent clouds in the upper atmosphere. So what they did is they were actually able to get observations with NearSpec and MIRI, so looking at 1 to 28 microns, which is like the perfect zone if you're trying to characterize these brown dwarf atmospheres. And because they were a part of this early release program, 
like I said, they don't fully analyze the spectrum. So they make a few assumptions about atmospheric mixing, as well as the range of temperatures and things like that. But generally, they use this atmospheric modeling code similar to what Caprice did called Picasso, and it's a 1D atmospheric model. Oh, I've used Picasso. Have you? Yeah, it it's cool. It's really powerful, but it doesn't quite do exactly what I wanted. So I don't think it was exactly right, but it's really cool. I guess you can use it for solar system planets too, but is there some special setting where you can, since we know so much more about solar system planets, it makes it more accurate or something? I suspect because I was using it for Uranus, and sorry, Kirsten, to totally derail the middle of your sentence here. (laughs) You're fine. (laughs) Because I was using it for Uranus, which is so much colder. Typically, it's used for brown dwarfs or like hot Jupiters or planets that are at least hundreds of Kelvins or thousands. And I was using it for a thing that's like 50 to a couple hundred. I just think it struggled in the numerics. So... Just to explain real quick how this works, Picasso is a 1D radiative convective model. In the lower atmospheres of planets, you have the bottom part is dominated by convection, then the middle part is dominated by radiation, and you have to find the radiative convective boundary. We can go into a whole you know, episode about how all this stuff works, but essentially you have to iterate through, make slight tweaks until you get the boundary right, and then when you do, you've converged on the accurate temperatures. But I think it was having trouble when I extended it to the altitudes I wanted it. It was struggling Mm -hmm. to converge. And I suspect it might be a numerical thing and not a physical thing. Interesting. I just love that you just took the explanation right out of my mouth. Oh, were you just going to say that you're going to... Oh. (laughs) no i actually really i was like it was going to be a whole bunch of and they did this (laughs) because atmospheres aren't my thing so i'm super happy that you. okay good let's let's just pretend that that we planned it that way and i didn't totally mansplain this yeah (laughs) you didn't but yeah so they used picasso and basically because it's they they were you know, making these assumptions and whatnot. This isn't super precise. I don't know if Picasso is generally really precise as a 1D uh, modeling, but generally when you start putting things down to 1D, Mm. you know, it's not as precise as maybe a 3D model, but computation trade-off. Definitely. You're going for Hmm. broad strokes and grand assumptions and averages as opposed to like minor details. So they were still able to find some pretty interesting results though. Even using a 1D, and I think 1D atmospheric modeling is pretty common, Mm -hmm. but without doing a really in-depth analysis, they were able to see some pretty interesting features from this planet. So they saw some, uh, like, so like you would expect, they found narrow sodium and potassium lines that indicate that this brown dwarf has a low surface gravity, which means they basically were able to confirm that it's really young. And then they also didn't see any of the alkali metal lines, but that's probably just because this brown dwarf is supposed to be somewhere in between an L and a T type. So you should see some metal lines. It should be hot. It may still have some deuterium burning. And so what they found were narrow sodium and potassium lines that you would expect from something that was close, like an L-type brown dwarf. And they also were able to determine that it had a low surface gravity because of this. 
which just confirms how young it actually is. They did not see uh, any alkali metal lines, but they say that this is something that we could potentially see in the future just because they didn't do that in-depth analysis. But one of the most interesting things that they found were clouds. Hmm. And the clouds were made up of silicate materials. So they basically had sand clouds or rock clouds. No way. That's so cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And apparently this is a common thing for brown dwarfs to have clouds made of metals, but it still sounds so cool to me no matter what. But yeah, so they found basically sand clouds uh, and the other last major result that they found um, was basically they were able to constrain the luminosity really well, which means that they were able to determine the mass a bit better of the brown dwarf because of that. So how does JWST help make a more accurate luminosity? Like I get it's really good with spectral resolution, but it's the same number of photons. Like how does that work? Well, so JWST, although it has better spectral resolution, similar to the direct imaging stuff that we've seen with JWST, it's able to see further, like in when you're thinking about these redshifted objects, which means it's able to see dimmer objects, but also it has better resolution in terms of um in terms of, you know, the frequencies as well. And I'm assuming that if it has a higher precision in terms of the frequencies, that should be able to give you better temperature measurements as well. Hmm. Does that logic? Does that logic? <laughs> I think it logics. <laughs> but because of that, they were actually able to constrain the mass a bit because of the deuterium burning, uh, which is strongly dependent on temperature as opposed to, you know, something else because it's this intermediate object. But yeah, that's what they found. And I still talked in 10 minutes. So, you know, I tried. I, I, you know, you did a pretty good job. I explained some stuff. I think we'll call this a win. Definitely a win, guys. Yeah. So this is literally JWST's first exoplanet atmosphere spectrum. Oh, I think that we have to caveat brown dwarf. Uh, see, I'm not a brown dwarf person, mm. so I don't I don't claim them. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the exoplanet people will not say brown dwarfs are the same because they're still looking for an exoplanet around a brown dwarf. None have been detected, and there's yeah. actually a huge effort at BU to find the first one. So, okay, before we do all that fun stuff, let's do some one sentence summaries, Kirsten. You're up first, and if your one sentence summary doesn't include the phrase sandcastles in the sky, I'm going to be pretty upset. <laughs> Nothing about sandcastles, but it does have a little bit of sand in it. So with JWST, we're going to be able to gain a much deeper understanding of brown dwarf atmospheres and their sandy clouds, as well as how they evolve. Very nice. Awesome. Sabrina? Mine isn't so much fun, but it's still really cool, I think. That's your one sentence summary? Very good. Okay, and moving on. <laughs> Through simulations done before JWST was launched, we know that discovering biosignatures in exoplanet atmospheres like ammonia 
should be possible, but we're still waiting to detect ammonia in an exoplanet atmosphere. I tried to say it with more, you know, excitement. Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, yeah. So before we detected exoplanets, it was pretty well believed that they existed. And before we detected their atmospheres, it was pretty well believed that that existed. So what do we think we'll discover, say, in 10 to 20 years about exoplanets that we have good reason to believe will be there? I am super excited about this question. I feel like I probably... I don't know. Maybe I haven't said this to you guys. I think that we're going to find plate tectonics on a planet. I don't see why there shouldn't be a planet that has weathering as well as plate tectonics. I don't know. We already know that there are hemispheric tectonics. So I think that it's plausible that we can have a planet that has plate tectonics. But we don't even know how they formed on our own planet. So Cool prediction, though. I like that. Yeah. I th- mm-hmm. Isn't that really related to your research, Kirsten? I am trying to make it related to my research. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I mean, I'm not a planet person, so I refer the listener to the JWST episode two, again, where we talk about this. <laughs> but I think habitability, we're starting to get closer to thinking about habitability in our solar system beyond Earth. And I think that the next step is looking at exoplanets. And I feel like JWST is going to have at least one phosphine Venus type of paper, but in an exoplanet. Mm. But hopefully, well, Sophia's not around to debunk it. So we're going to, hopefully we'll have like an actual (laughs) measurement of (laughs) a a biosignature in an exoplanet atmosphere. That is a good one as well. I think everyone would lose their minds if we detected something that even could potentially be a biosignature. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if it was with enough confidence, that person would probably go down in history as like, I don't know. Mm, definitely. That would, that would be a Nobel Prize worthy discovery. I would say that I think we're going to fill in the phase space of exoplanet detections with more mm. Earth-like objects. That is longer periods around sun-like stars. And I don't yet know how because the technology isn't isn't quite there. We don't have a technique to detect those with regularity. But I think the interest in habitability will be much stronger once we can map it on to something about Earth. It's so hard to look at a planet that's nothing at all like Earth and say, well, you know, if you squint your eyes and contort your field of view, maybe you can <laughs> find a way to get life on this rock. So we'll see one thing at a time. And with that, we conclude episode 77 of Astra Soundbites. The air out there. I said that weird. And with that, we conclude episode 77 of Astra Soundbites. The air out there. If you want to read the Astra Bites or papers we talked about today, we're going to link that in the show notes, as well as to the HARP Citizen Science Project, and we will try to put up on our website a recording of us trying to identify the signals within one of the HARP measurements. If you want to hear all of our wonderful episodes, you know where to find them. It's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, Amazon Music, and anywhere else you get podcasts. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.
The air out there. The air out there. 